Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Comics Collective, the weekly podcast where we read and discuss a collection of comic books or a graphic novel. I'm your host, Dallas. I'm Alexis. And I'm Anne. I can't believe you're off script already. I'm, we're going to talk about it later. <laughs> and today we are joined by none other than YouTube savant himself, Patrick Willems. How you doing, Patrick? I'm doing great. I've also never been described as a savant before. Well, there you go. 28 seconds in and you're you're set. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, I, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm like running around in my mind, like, how, how do I feel about that title? Isn't. So I like Rain Man. Mm, are isn't you? He, isn't he mm-hmm. referred to as a savant? I think so. I, you know, that can be a question for the listeners. Is Patrick Willems like Rain Man? We're just going to put that one out into the world mm-hmm. and see what people say. It's up to you. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the show, Patrick. Um, My pleasure. Happy to be here. Yeah. For anyone who is listening to this that does not know you, could you give us like a quick introduction to you your relationship with comic books and maybe what we're talking about this week okay uh huge question that i will try to answer in less than half an hour i okay my name is patrick willems i i'm a filmmaker and video essayist i primarily make increasingly long video essays about movies on the internet that's mostly what I do. I also really love comic books. Uh, they uh, honestly, c- comics are sort of my first love before I got into movies. I got into comics uh, that, and um, I read a lot of them. Uh, and uh, and so yeah, I, I guess I, I I I occasionally bring them up on on my show. So I get I guess it's it's public information that I enjoy you know, uh, this, uh, sequential art and storytelling. Uh, and so that's, I guess why I'm here. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we're, Oh, today we are discussing, uh, the 12 issue limited series published by image comics that came out, I don't know, a few years ago. Uh, Written by Ed Brubaker, drawn by Sean Phillips, colors by Elizabeth Breitweiser, uh, called the Fade Out, um, and I, I, we're, I believe I'm on this episode because I speak often about how I am such a huge Brubaker Phillips fan, and I just have like a standing order at my local comic shop. Like anytime they put out a new thing, just pull it for me. Like just like order order a copy and uh, and just like put it in my my pull list, and um, I love the fade out. And uh, we kicked around some ideas about what we'd what we'd discuss, and we settled on this. And I'm glad we did. I am as well. I had not read this since single issues. I think in 2014. Is Was when it this that came long out. ago? I think so. And so. There were some highlight moments that I remembered, but this was largely new ground for me on the reread. Like, I feel like I'm a different kind of reader. I understand the tropes of noir a lot better now than I did reading this in single issues. But I want to turn it over to Perpetual, first-time reader, Alexis. What did you think of your first... first first-time reader? She... Here's the gist of the show a little bit. Alexis is new to comic books, even though 
We've been doing this show for years. She still <laughs> is always like, since I'm new to comics, and then gives in. whatever her opinion is. Well, so now a few years into comics, uh, what do you think so far? Uh, bad, <laughs> be bad art form. Do you regret this? Depends on the day. Patrick. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on if Dallas makes me read from hell again. Because I feel like it's coming. That book ruled so hard. Oh. I, it's a great comic book. One of the best. I yes. may revisit it. I may revisit it. Okay. I was not in the right headspace. I wanted to die when I saw how many words were on those pages. Said, so the, tra- the, the chapter with the tour of London was your <laughs> favorite, right? <laughs> yes. Yes, that flashes in my nightmares every once in a while, and I just wake up in a cold sweat. Literally, I was cross-legged, <laughs> floating a foot off the ground, reading that chapter, and Alexis was clawing I was at fighting her eyes. The trenches. <laughs> but you came home like Charlie with PTSD. Literally, I have from hell PTSD. <laughs> um, but no, this is so fun. Like, I feel like. Correct me if I'm wrong, but this is our second noir comic in on the show, or have we done more than that? Yeah, we had Black Sad recently. Well, that's the one that came to mind, because I loved that one. Yep, so second time this year. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure we've done others. But I'm sure we've done others, too. That's what comes to mind. Yeah. Just just do the entire Brubaker oeuvre. I just really all think we should. I'm right. I'm currently I we Dallas we we talked about this via email uh, about a potential option. I'm currently about halfway through reading his Catwoman run for the first time. I have the giant omnibus that you know you could if you dropped it on a person they would die, um, and uh, it is so good. I really want to pick it up because a Brew Baker's great, but then Darwin Cook for the first half of that run. It's, it's not the crazy. first half. It is Darwin Cook draws the first like four issues. Oh no! Well, it, it's all he also wrote and drew the Selena's big score graphic novel that comes first and is collected in the book. But okay. yeah, Darwin Cook only draws like the first four issues. But then the art remains very good. But he, here's mm-hmm. the thing w- with the Catwoman run, everyone loves the Fraction Aja Hawkeye. Mm-hmm. Uh. Reading Catwoman is like seeing the Rosetta Stone for Hawkeye, and uh, and then and then thus it's you know like the current like Tom Taylor Bruno Redondo Nightwing run that everyone's like oh it's like Hawkeye it's like oh no there this Catwoman run is really the origin of all of these types of comics it's so good interesting so yeah I'll just have... just do all his stuff it's it's spectacular it's a fun run horrifying in places but definitely a great run. Yeah, I just uh, got up through like a bunch of the Black Mask stuff, and yep. it is so n- grisly for mm-hmm. a like mainstream early two thousands DC title. Really he, intense. Say so, like you, you got to hand it to DC in the two thousands. They were experts at finding new ways to traumatize women. It was they were on their game. It was crazy. It is true. <laughs> They'd get in their retreats. They're like, all right, what can we do this time, fellas? Call up Black Mask. They call up Black thing. Mask. They call up Dr. Light. They're like, listen, they, <laughs> I don't know why, but I'm angry and they got to pay for it. Yeah, this is, 
this one holds up, uh, I would say, a whole lot better than Identity Crisis does. Just a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. That was one that I... Look, I liked Identity Crisis when I was like 15 and reading it in single issues. And then I revisited it several years later and I was like, Mm -hmm. maybe this comic was a bad idea. Yeah, yeah. I was. I'm, I'm glad you said that. I was actually in the same boat. I loved that book in high school. It was one of the first first DC books I read. But then I started reading more DC books. I'm like, wow, this really didn't need to be what it was. The moment I read anything about Ralph Dimney outside of that book and saw his relationship with Sue, I'm like, yeah, it was. Um, that was rough. <laughs> that was real rough. It was. It's also. Uh, it's not even a good mystery. Um, no. Yeah. No. I. I and. and the Dr. Light thing in particular is just, like, one of the ultimate examples, I think, of, like, uh, people who, who desperately want their superhero comics to be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think me, as, a, like, a, a teenager, was like, I want this to be taken seriously, because comics mm-hmm. were still, like, very... They, they were not, like, cool yet. Um, and so, anyway, Identity Crisis, thumbs down. Uh, 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 Brubaker, Darwin Cook, Catwoman, huge, big thumbs up. Mm-hmm. I'll gladly come back on the show uh, to talk about that someday. Outstanding. So, yeah. Lex, this team, Brubaker and Phillips, they have made a bunch of stuff. Fatal, that you really want to read. Same guys. Ooh. Ooh. So, this news. being your introduction <laughs> to this pair of creators, somehow, we haven't talked about these guys yet. What did you think of the fade out? I really loved it. I feel like, for me... Kind of, I, I'm actually really happy that we did do the Black Sad episode before this one because it made me feel very comfortable with the type of story that this was. I feel like if I was going into this with less of a knowledge of the feel for Noir, I would have been a little bit lost. But I, while I was reading this and I was being introduced to the characters, I was like, oh, okay. I have a grasp on what's going on. I'm familiar with this time period. I feel like the story fits really well with the characters. I understand where they're coming from. I understand their motivations. And I really loved, I mean, for me, I feel like these grungy noir stories are always set in a time that is very much glamorized, which I mean, we all know, like that's the whole point. It's very glamorized in that time, but it just really shows the dark underbelly of that also which I feel like doesn't ever get talked about in mainstream media and so just to have this story that I feel like addresses it and fleshes these things out but doing it in such a way that really drives the story forward and makes you understand these characters just it just made it so fun I really enjoyed this comic and the art and the colors were phenomenal so i will i could talk about that for hours i loved the art for this one it was even fun comparing this against like night fever that had just come out to see sean phillips was already clearly fully formed by the time of fade out and yet he has surpassed himself yet again he's just lapping himself at this point with the artwork that he's putting out it's astonishing yeah, it's uh I just recently, like in the past year, read uh Sleeper for the first okay. time, which I believe That's might their be first. their their first collaboration. That was back that was a Wildstorm book. It's like set in the Wildstorm universe. Uh and Sean Phillips' art has always looked like Sean Phillips' art. 
I remember, uh, I think my first introduction to him was weirdly, there was a brief period in the early 2000s when he drew Uncanny X-Men. Okay. Uh, I believe it was during the infamous Chuck Austin run. <laughs> Uh, the first the first comic series I ever dropped, but I di- I didn't drop it because of Sean Phillips. But he was always I I felt like a like a, a funny fit for X Men. Yeah. But but yeah, he's this run that he started with with Brubaker, starting like in the early two thousands, and then obviously, you know, they did Criminal for years and Incognito and all of those things. But then just like since they've gone to to Image and they have this deal where they just and they, they work so fast you know like there's like they've put out like what like five reckless books like in three years yeah. uh something like that night fever this year and he's just gotten better and better i think as far as philip's art goes i believe um fade out is the first book that he drew digitally interesting you can kind of see it um in basically the the thing that like the giveaway for me often is, uh if, if someone is like drawing a comic digitally is if on like a small panel there will be like a kind of impossible amount of detail maybe in like one part of their face like like on on some close-ups of, of like uh some of the old men in this like like camp or like al camp or thursby uh if you look in and it's like oh to get those wrinkles that are that with the lines that fine you have to literally zoom in on like an ipad or something to draw those lines uh but yeah i i think this was the first i think Correct. Look, Sean Phillips, if you're listening, please correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> I think this one he drew fully digitally, and I think since then he now uh, has um, kind of like splits it. I think he might do digital pencils and then print it out and then ink by hand. Uh, but yeah, but this I think this is some of his best work, and also I think this is the last book that. Uh, Elizabeth Brightweiser colored because then his son Jacob took over coloring everything he's done since then. And I think I feel like Jacob Phillips's colors kind of took what what's done here with sometimes like coloring outside the line and getting a little bit more impressionistic and then that's just like continued with everything they've done since and uh and he just he draws really fast and he just I think continues to get better it's it's wild it was crazy reading interviews from brubaker he says that sean phillips is faster than him so like he he is the one that is constantly getting badgered like hey where's my next script what's going on and that is always the inverse in comic books um but Anne, we haven't heard from you yet talk to me about the fade out brubaker and phillips so this is my, it's not my first Brubaker and it's not my first Brubaker Phillips. It's my second Brubaker Phillips because I just started reading Fatal about a month or two ago um, because I I love it. I love my girls. I love when my girls do things and Fatal was the perfect mix of noir and supernatural horror mystery to, to really, really get me. I'm very, very excited to keep reading through that, but um. Yeah, I so I 
I knew about what to expect tone-wise going into this. And I I think it was just exactly where I thought it would be. I don't think it was a book that, at least on this read-through, really blew me away. That's why I'm actually really, really excited for this conversation, because I want to hear people smarter than me explain to me what's happening in this book that I missed. Um, but it's it was definitely solid fun. It's... It's it's always hard when the the book ends on a downer and you have to sit there for a second. You're like, okay, it was a downer, but the downer was the point, and it does say something, and it's a little rough. But it's it's still it was still an experience. I still found myself lost in it at times, and I think my my favorite part about it actually, I think was um, Elizabeth Brightweiser's colors. I love them very very much. And I, don't, I don't know. They just because I'm reading through, um, like when I read through Fatal, it's done by Dave Stewart, and it's like this is this all feels very familiar. But Elizabeth gave a lot of characters a certain little bit of extra that made them stand out. Like every time I see Maya on the page, she just radiates like a beacon, and it's it's so subtle. But I I had a realization like halfway through where it's like I know what color Maya's eyes are. And I have no idea what color anyone else's eyes are. It's the... I don't know. It... The... It... I can't find the words. I literally cannot find the words. It was just... though That little thing that kept me going through the book is just... I love how amazing this one character looks. And... Yeah, I, it was... It's always special when I get to that part where I'm like, I'm starting to realize more and more when the colors are the thing that are bringing me through the book. And I thought she did a great job here. I thought it was really fun. Yeah, I think I think if you like the way this looks, you'll really enjoy the stuff the team has done mm-hmm. since then. Because I feel like they've, they've just like kept this going. Nice. This is very much feels like the turning point is the wrong word but a lot of the work since the fade out you can see a lot of the fade out in whereas the fade out felt like a new thing when it came out and it's actually really interesting it is the first book to come of their image comics deal so in like 2013 2014 they are the first creative team to ever get a blank check from image comics to say for five years anything you want to make we will pay you for We know that you were good with deadlines. We know that you sell anything you want. So the very first thing they did, they said, man, what would be the hardest pitch to sell? 1940s noir drama. That's what we're doing. And it was still massively successful. And I think it gave them a lot of confidence in themselves and in what they wanted to do moving forward, because really they haven't returned to any of the more comic booky aspects of the criminal, you know, like criminal is a great book, but ultimately you can tell those are the same guys that worked on sleeper that made criminal. Well, they, they did a run of, of criminal after this. And it, even that is different than original criminal. I feel like, like when you read cruel summer, mm-hmm. you're like, Oh, this feels different. And I, Oh yeah. I don't know. I feel like the fade out is a, a really great book to look at Brubaker and Phillips through because so much of what makes them great is right in here. Yeah. Uh, I, I totally agree. This might be my favorite thing of theirs. And I have read almost all of it. I haven't read incognito. 
that is that is the one that I need. There's a period where I don't know. I think I, when I was maybe like high school, where I was uh, dumb, and uh, despite having read like, I started reading Brubaker when he did uh, Detective Comics. Wait, no, no, no. He did Batman. Rucko was on Detective at the time. I read his Batman. I read uh, Gotham Central. Uh, which is of course so good, but then like when he went over to Marvel, I didn't read his Captain America run until like a decade later, and I was like, I everyone likes it. I should go back and read that. Um, but yeah, I, I missed a bunch of that, and then I I also didn't read Criminal until years later, and uh, and then I I realized like, oh wait, is this guy my favorite writer? Um, but yeah, the Fade Out it it might be my favorite of. The things they've done, but that's also because for me, it it hits so many of like my particular like sweet spots, mm-hmm. like this, and th- that have only. I feel like I loved actually. I may I'm realizing this in the moment as I am talking. So, I mm-hmm. uh, in so okay it, to put this in perspective in the past, uh, like couple years, really I think since like early 2022. I uh, I decided to just start getting into uh, old like nineteen forties and fifties detective fiction, and uh, and I, I I bought a whole lot of like old paperback books, and I have just been reading a lot of old noir novels, and I love them. Uh, Ross McDonald is 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 my guy. He's my my personal favorite, um, but I. And then also a thing um, over the past few years, uh, I've read some uh, some James Elroy books, and I think I think Elroy might be the biggest influence on the fade out. Have you guys read any Elroy books? I've not. So, well, the the two I've read that are I think most relevant to this are because Elroy was he, he's still alive. Like he was doing noir stuff, but like in the eighties. So the Black Dahlia, uh, which was turned into one of Brian De Palma's worst movies, um, but the book is incredible. And then L.A. Confidential, okay, and uh, which is turned into a great movie. But I read L.A. Confidential last year, and that is one. It's set during the same time period as this, and it also, um, in, it's this crime story that butts up against Hollywood and and all the you know all the shiny romantic aspects of like that era but then the like the really awful grisly shit that like lies underneath the surface and i don't think like brubaker and phillips are in any way doing an elroy pastiche i think this is very different but they're dealing with similar ideas in a similar time period and i have realized i think in the years since i originally read this in single issues that i just love this stuff so much i love this genre and this type of story and especially anytime uh you get the intersection of like crime noir and old hollywood i there's just i mean and and this book gets into it so well because there is just as much as like you know the world has a very romantic view of old hollywood you know glamorous movie stars the old studio system everyone's working on on the lot and all of that but i uh, obviously so much about 
there's a, a lot of bad stuff in that world. And I love that the fade out kind of functions as a really great history lesson as well, where it's like, okay, so we have the impact of like the war, uh, you know, on, on the people who work in the industry. We have things like, um, you know, German filmmakers who had fled Germany to, to work, to work here. We have the, the system of like the, you know, we, we have, I mean, I mean, they, they get into the guys who like founded studios during the twenties. They have the stuff of the old, like the one reelers, uh, starring kids, stuff like the little rascals, uh, that kind of thing. It, um, you know, you've got like this, this kind of works as like a weird companion piece with, um, the Coen brothers movie, hail Caesar. Okay. I've never seen it. Uh, it's so good. It's okay. it, it, it's really great, uh, but uh, and that came out I think twenty sixteen, um, and but like Josh Brolin's character in Hail Caesar, like the, the main character in the movie, is basically um, Phil Brodsky in this. Okay, like that is the same role he has at the fictional studio in that movie. It's the same kind of thing, and um, and and obviously you've got the you know the red scare the fbi the, you know the hunt for commies all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. i mean the the ultimate and we wait can we get into spoilers or should, yes. Does, yes okay spoiler show but i i when i reread this i had forgotten about the revelation that the fbi guy posing as a producer on the lot was the one responsible for the murder i i had forgotten who the killer was and that is, I, I think, such a great revelation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is like as as like as you know, twisted and screwed up as like all this a, a lot of this stuff in Hollywood is. That ultimately, you know, it's the U.S. government who is, uh, you know, responsible for the murder that sets this whole thing off. Like, like they're 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 still even worse. It is, um, I just yeah. I sorry, I'm just rambling now. I'm just uh I just I really love this book and I think it's great. And uh and yeah, just on this reread, I like it even more. I love that. Um Lex, you started this by talking about how much you loved the noir genre. Patrick just talked a lot about why he loves it, how he loves it. What draws you to the genre as you're getting deeper into it? Well, first off, I might need to have Patrick send me a list of all of those noir books that you were just talking about because off air, I was just telling Dallas how much I want to find some of those in the wild. So I may need that. But gladly, I feel like for me, something that draws me so much to specifically like I feel like the noir with the Hollywood, like I feel like that mesh works really well for me because I mean, I've mentioned it before on the pod, but like I grew up in a very theater-centric personal lifestyle. Like, I was in theater. I did all those shows, singing, dancing. Like, that was my whole life. Like, I loved the glitz and glam of putting on shows and doing these things. And I always saw that as something that would be very big in my life. And so to find stories like this where it has that glitz and glam of old Hollywood that has been set on this huge pedestal for so long but it's also mixed with the nitty gritty and the darkness of the new war, the newer crime 
that I've also come to love. I just feel like it's the perfect mesh of both of them. Because also I've mentioned on the pod, I love a good true crime podcast. I don't know if it just itches my brain in the right way. I don't know if that's terrible, but also love Dateline. <laughs> Me and my grandmother watching Dateline together. <laughs> but, I think that's just like, that's so common just yeah. among p- humans that I don't yeah. think you need to apologize. It's just for that. like the morbid curiosity, which I feel like everybody has, but I'm willing to talk about that I have it. But. <laughs> The brave pioneer of true crime podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> Breaking, coming out with your truth. You like true crime podcasts. You don't care who knows it. Oh, funny. Funny. But no, it perfectly meshes two of my favorite things. But it's great. I just love it. And our resident character driven fan mm-hmm. of the show. How do you like these morally gray and dubious characters in the fade out? Like, I don't know if there's a single good person in this book. And was that an issue for you? Did you like them better for it? I'd love to hear your thoughts. No, I, I think it's the thing that really pushes it forward. It's the, it's the one part where I fight against the, um, the setup of like the noir though, because it's very much a story that's being narrated to us. And it's like, I would love to have more like, I, instead of being like told these characters thoughts, I want to hear their actual thoughts. But the, Cause that's the, if there's something that Noir does well, I think it's really, really complicated characters and it doesn't give you anyone specifically to, to be like, that is, that's my guy. That's my girl. That's, that's who I'm going to root for. Um, and it's interesting from that perspective. It's, I think for me, it's always the tone of the Noir that gets me where it's like, I, typically just coming at it it always feels a bit more a a realistic and grounded look at the world and sometimes it's not one that always clicks with me i really need a character to to pull me out of that or else i get like caught up in the the muck and the murk of the storytelling which is impressive in its own right but it's i don't know sometimes it, it leaves me out to dry and it takes a while for it to, to sit afterwards. It's like, I've been sitting with the end of the story for maybe a day and it's still, you know, like rolling around in there. It's, it's fun to have a story where you don't have that concrete conclusion at the end about what you thought, but it's admittedly frustrating, which is an interesting place to be. Something I love so much about the fade out is that between issues like four and nine, it is so about the sticky lives of Charlie and Maya and Gil, right? Like the murder of Valerie is still on their minds ostensibly, but Gil, who is very much a background character, even though he is the one pushing the plot forward, is the only one that's really concerned with that murder at this point. Mm-hmm. And the book itself becomes about this idea of the replacement blonde, right? Mm -hmm. I think the cast page calling Maya the replacement blonde is really interesting because obviously that's how the studio sees her, but then ultimately that's how Charlie sees her as well. Mm -hmm. He's trying to recreate what he lost with Valeria. And no matter how much she bucks against that how often she like screams into the story like i 
am interesting. I have my own things going on. I have a life outside of you, Charlie. He, and therefore the eye of the story refused to acknowledge that. But I think in a very intentional way, that is fascinating. That Like this guy who is so indignant about how this system chews up, spits out, and ignores people, ultimately is doing that to a very complex and interesting individual who is begging to have something a little bit more with him than what they have with everybody else around them. Right. I mean, there's the part like in, I think it might be the final chapter when he finds out that she's Mexican and Mm -hmm. she's like, didn't you know, like she was like, she just assumed that he would have like worked that out by that point. She wasn't really hiding it from him, but he like saw what he wanted to and just did not pick up on it at all. (laughs) That really great panel a few issues from the end where he's just panicking about what to do about Gil. And she's just, she has that moment where she's like, you don't see me at all. Do you? And I, I don't, it's the idea of like, he's so focused on Val and what he's lost that he has no idea what's right in front of him. And Val is such a nothing character through a lot of this. I know so little about Val and I know so much about Maya. I feel like a lot of her experiences got communicated through Maya and yeah, I (laughs) crazy rough sucks to suck, I guess. Sorry, Maya. The comparison between issue seven and 11 is really interesting to me where we go to this beach house with Maya first in issue seven. And it's Mm -hmm. this booze fuel, like roll in the hay, right? That is a break for Charlie. And then in issue 11, when you learn that that was like Valeria's spot, Val's spot that she went to hide and where he had like a real emotional connection with her, it just twists that knife in so deeply that he went back to this place that is sacred to him and didn't know how to recreate that moment with his replacement blonde it just hit me like a train this time through reading it all back to back because reading this in single issues i didn't notice the parallel in the same way i do reading it all together mm-hmm. yeah I, I i also um i i, I feel the same way because also reading this in single issues because this book is so dense and there are so many characters i do remember I'd be when it was coming out month to month. Like sometimes I, you know, I'd read an issue and they'd mention someone's name. And I'd be like, "Wait, who is that again?" Because I feel like I last read their name two months ago, and I'd be like, "God, be going through like my boxes and pulling out the other issues and flipping back through." And so reading it as like one contained thing, it's like this. I mean, uh, I I do love reading comics and single issues. I, I I read a lot of comics and single issues. Uh, I probably will never stop. But this is one of these books that I think does actually work best as like a novel, like as like a contained thing that you read straight through. I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that Brubaker and Phillips have entirely switched to releasing original graphic novels uh and and have pretty much given up on the single issue format um because i mean like i know i know i'm like uh 
I've heard Brubaker's explanations for it, just uh, the way it speeds up the process because they don't have to, you know, have like do covers for every single issue. They don't have to worry about like sales dropping off over time. But but also just like the way they work, it's like I f- they don't tend to as much as they've done extended runs on things. They tend to write contained stories. And uh, and so this this would be pretty ambitious for like an an original graphic novel because it's like pretty long, but uh, but yeah, I I think it, I think this works best uh, read as a complete book, like as as one complete thing. Even like I I'm so sorry to say what I'm about to say, uh, mostly because I feel like this might annoy the creators of, of the book, but um because I do love it as a comic, but. I th- I think this could pretty easily be adapted into a potentially great movie. Like mm-hmm. uh, not a TV miniseries. I think this could be a movie. Uh and I you know, I would be excited if that happened especially if Brubaker was hired to write it because he has, you know, screenwriting experience. Uh and yeah, this like uh, I f- I feel like this could be another like LA confidential like quality movie um, because it's also some of the techniques that Phillips uses in the storytelling are it, it's funny because this isn't like the Brian Hitch kind of like widescreen like cinematic comic uh, it, it is very much like a regular comic but it'll do things like I, I'm thinking in the first chapter when Charlie is trying to remember aspects of like the events from the night before and the way it'll do things where it'll show it'll have a flashback but like uh someone's uh yeah I, I'm looking at it here he's like uh it, it's on it's like five pages in but uh he's remembering like walking down the sidewalk he can't remember exactly who's there and so everyone's face is in shadow he's even um it's even before he discovers Val's body and so uh there's there's a panel where he takes a drink and the way it's drawn his hand and the bottle obscure Val's face in the background and then you just see like kind of blurry fragments of her face and then the, the cigarette smoke and it, it's the kind of thing you can imagine if this is you know a shot in a movie it's uh we have a shot where he takes a drink and he is in focus in the foreground and she is out of focus because you know he's he's trying to like he's trying to recall, but he can't remember who was there, and um, yeah, it's uh like the the uh, any scene uh set in in Charlie's office, the way uh especially especially this is like I think with the colors, but the way that Brightweiser colors the the uh the rays of sun coming in through the Venetian blinds, uh, I think is. It, it's cool because it's not the usual kind of noiry, just like the hard black shadows across everything. It's more like these just like really harsh spots of sun that come in. And yeah, I just, I, you know, I, I if I'm not saying this absolutely needs to be a movie uh, because I think it is a great comic, but I think Look, if you're going to adapt anything into into a movie, I think this is, you know, this all the material is right there. And I think it's the right length where you could 
make something pretty great. I absolutely agree. I think speaking of the visuals still in issue one, the establishing shots of what this LA specifically of what Charlie's LA looks like. There's this great panel that takes up like two thirds of the page right before the end of the book where Charlie's going to his apartment, where we're going to meet Gil in the more serious way. And you can see how intricate and stacked on top of each other the apartments are where Charlie lives. And then my re- my real favorite one is the very first page of issue 12. You get to see where Maya lives. You get to see how she her mom's house is on the outskirts of L.A. You find out that it's it's like the Mexican part of town, that it's. It just there's a lot of visual storytelling going on here. And I think the parallels between where he starts the story and his own little rundown apartment that's very in the middle of everything and where he ends his story in a rundown house on the outskirts. It sort of tracks like the cyclical nature of what Charlie's doing here, right? No matter how close he drifts to the sun, he's always going to be like he says in the book right next to the sunshine, right? Like he knows how to be next to the light. He doesn't know how to be the light. And then he just, I mean, for the very last panel, he walks right back into those lights drinking and it just punches you in the guts because you realize he's never going to go anywhere. He's going to be right there forever. Mm -hmm. And no matter how incensed he felt about what happened to Val or what happened to Gil, he can't, not be by that light. Yeah, I'm really wondering is this is this the bleakest thing that these guys have ever made? Cuz like I mean usually there are others like it, it tends to deal with dark material like whatever they're they're working on uh and it usually leans into noir but I the way th- th- it truly like the it's such a a truly hopeless world like like in this one and and the way it ends up it is like i can't recall any like any of their others quite being this much of like a gut punch by the end hey if this is the only one that's like that i'm okay with that <laughs> i honestly you should check out the reckless books they rule okay that i oh my god they're so much fun they're so good yeah like and every everything Ethan Reckless does makes me smile. Like he he'll just hatch at a guy, and you just want to be like, "Thanks, Steve Irwin, way to go." <laughs> it's it's awesome. Oh, and just I mean the 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 you know the one the one book that he's like not even in, uh, is like it, it, you know possibly my favorite one. But yeah, th- those obviously you know deal with like. You know, they're dark, they, you know, various, like, you know, messed up people, but, um, but, you know, the, uh, the bad guys don't win quite to the extent that they do in this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, right, because, like, this even has the thing where, like, you know, I love the part when finally Gil and Charlie are like, look, let let's we're not good people but let's try to actually like do one good thing 
and and go and sneak into old Al Camp's house and like get some, you know, just get him on the record. It's a bad plan. Like they, it is not a well thought out plan. But then they get there, and and, and you know they're like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna confront this like depraved old man who did all this like fucked up shit, and we're gonna like make sure people know about this. And they get there, and they're like, oh, they they already drowned him. He's already dead. Like the system is like is so ahead of us that they've just like we there's nothing we can do. So like so they get there. Like the evil old guy is already dead, uh, and then just running away, uh, Gil gets shot and dies. So they don't. Uh, they not only don't accomplish nothing. They, uh, yeah, one of them dies. It is. It is real bleak. It really is. Also, one thing I just remembered that uh, a device I really love. I'm just like this is really intricately plotted just the little device of how earl rath the movie star also i i gotta say i think they do a really good job of inserting the fictional hollywood stuff into real hollywood stuff mm-hmm. where it's like okay like victory street studios is that it like it's a studio but they're like it's the smallest of the major studios it's not as prestigious as the other ones uh but then it's like okay like here's earl rath he's like a movie star but then you know they'll have scenes where like clark gable slides in you know humphrey bogart's there uh i love when gill goes and meets with dashiell hammett in one scene that's really fun. But uh, but the thing where Earl Rath is, he's starring in a movie where his face is all bandaged up for most of the movie. And so they establish there that he has a body double who is performing like all the wide shots because the star doesn't want to get bandaged up. And so they're once again establishing this idea of like just doubles for people. Like, you know, anyone... You know the 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 blonde actress dies. She can be replaced with a new one. You know the like the movie star. Even it isn't even him on screen for a lot of the movie. It's just another guy with bandages. But then it sets up the thing where then Charlie can bar the bandages because everyone you know just keeps assuming that he'll be the body double because like he, he's around uh, the lot all the time, and so he you know he dresses up like that. Uh, you know, for like the Halloween party and then to to break into the office. It's just like um there's like yeah, it's I think it's really it's really clever about how it threads all that stuff through. It really is. I I think this might be their best paced comic as well. A lot of the interviews that I read from Brubaker talked about how often he was juggling scenes as he went through this, where he'd realize something that he thought should go in issue two would have to end up going into issue five. And I really think, I mean, they pulled it off. Like the one that comes to mind immediately for me is the reveal of how Gil pulled Charlie into this studio with the gambling debt, right? That it just comes at the perfect moment where you cannot be mad at Gil at all after this much story, but it also makes so much sense why Charlie is at rock bottom. And mm-hmm. then I also think it is such salt in the wound that when Gil is gone, all of a sudden Charlie can write again like this, mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. terrible friendship that is essential to who they are 
and they just keep each other propped up at their worst place. It's just brutal. And I love that that scene came as a cutaway during a fight scene between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Whether and the narration basically says like, "Hey, anyways, they're fighting. We should probably take a moment to show you why this matters," and then just has that long history between. It's it's such a tragic, tragic friendship. And I think one of my I was looking back at the first issue, and I think one of my favorite subtle art moments that I missed the first time through was um, when he takes Gil back to to Melba, and. Um, she gives him that hug out of nowhere and he and she's like she goes straight into his arms and he is just he's like no touchy no touchy hands out as wide as possible it's like why did why did that surprise him and then you keep reading the story like oh i get it i understand and everything about that friendship i just mm, bad feels well, I just, I love how their little messed up friendship is sort of a microcosm for the whole book, right? Like, this is mm-hmm. a book about how sex, booze, and violence hurt people. And that issue is about how sex, booze, and violence have hurt this pair of friends. Yeah, honestly, it's amazing that they managed to get anything done since it seems like in literally every scene, they are like drunk to the, they're just blackout drunk. Yeah. The whole time. Just like, constantly. You, you know, driving cars, blackout drunk. Doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. I mean, with the premise of this uh, this comic and where it begins, I mean, this is basically like The Hangover, but it's set in the 40s. <laughs> I feel like they should have pitched it like that. Yeah, why, why didn't they? When are Brubaker and Phillips going to man up and write us a buddy comedy? Seriously. Well, I feel like is Reckless the closest they've gotten to that? It might be. I just... Reckless is so many things. But if we start talking about Reckless, I will talk a lot about Reckless. I know. Well, it's the thing so... You know, I I mentioned that uh, over the the last, uh, you know, year and a half or so, I've been reading just a lot of, like, old detective fiction. And it's it's, it's funny also reading, like, this... The thing is, the stuff from, like, the 50s, there's... It's, you know, they can't do certain things, really, in... Like, like, like no one ever swears in the books. Like, uh, no, like, no... There's never, like, sex scenes in there. It's funny. I actually... I just read my first uh, Mickey Spillane book. And, um, which is real... Has anyone read any of his, his stuff? Mm-hmm. So, I... It's um. It was rec. Uh, th- this this is a comic book podcast. I was uh I was talking about this with uh with Nick Derrington, uh okay. the artist, and um and and he was like he was like you gotta check out Spillane because it it really is like just the Rosetta Stone for Frank Miller, and uh and it's funny because like you know I I read I you know I read like. Uh, the Ross McDonald stuff and like some Chandler stuff. And then Spillane comes in and it takes all that stuff, but just cranks everything way up. And like, it's like, like this is actually what it like, what like hard boiled detective fiction is. And it does. It it, it absolutely is like, you look at this and it's like, Oh, this, of, of course, this is like Frank Miller's favorite 
writer in the world. It's um, it's just just the way the narration goes, the way like like the the way the violence is described. It's like. Uh, it's like like Sin City is just an amplified version of this, but like even down to like his Batman stuff. But the uh, the fun thing, for instance, in like uh, in like Mickey Spillane, it's where like uh, in his first book, it's about a detective whose best friend is murdered, and he's just like, I'm gonna kill the guy who did this, and he's like, I'm just gonna hunt down and try to find like whoever this is, and he and he tells the police chief, he's like. Just so you know, I'm going to find him first and I'm going to murder him. You want to put him in jail, but I'm going to kill this guy. And every scene that, like, uh, it's like every other scene is either um, the main character, Mike Hammer is his name. <laughs> the greatest name ever. It's either he gets in a fight and it, it describes in great detail how he's like kicking people's teeth out and stuff like that. It's so harsh. And or he just encounters women and every single woman tries to sleep with him except because it was a book in written in this time he always like like right before they're gonna have sex he's like i actually gotta go i have to get back to my case we 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 can't actually do this right now and so the uh, and so it's funny like at the time they could only like even though they they were all the books were you know dealing with you know, sordid material. They're all about murders and stuff like that. They could, like, they were only allowed to get, like, so explicit with what they did. And so that's why, especially, like, uh, you know, like the other, like, uh, like the, like the Chandler ones are like the, the Ross McDonald ones. They're about, like, a detective who's usually just, like, you know, they had been in the war and now they are back and they're usually. They at some point had a wife, but they are divorced and they are sad. And and they're and it's like it is a bad world, and they're basically their job is just like I'm trying to, you know, fix like like the like just just make minor improvements to a world that is like so clearly shitty and like and like harming everybody. And so um, but the the interesting thing about all of these, I'm, I'm I promise I'm going somewhere with this, uh, is that they all of these books are like narrated from a first person perspective. There, it's all like that. It's like you know, it is it is one protagonist who is narrating everything, describing his experiences, and uh, and we see it all through his eyes, and we don't. There are no scenes that he is not in, and so. That to me is one of the things that's really interesting about the fade out is that it is dealing with really similar material. Brubaker loves that stuff. Like Reckless is riffing on that, I think, even more, despite being mostly set in the 70s and 80s. Uh, but that is that is the same kind of like I, I he's he's talked about like these books in like interviews about Reckless and uh and about those are like his main inspiration. But uh but the fade out is I think is it's the choice to have like the omniscient narrator kind of outside everything. Like it would be, I feel like the obvious choice would be to have Charlie narrate it since he's in most scenes, but he's not, but, uh, but he's not narrating it. It, it, it is like, it is. And I, I think to me, that's one of the things that is really interesting about the book. And I think contributes to the tone. Uh, seeing it, it like having this kind of presented from an outside perspective who's kind of like 
who real who who is able to objectively assess how kind of damned Charlie is and it just kind of like flatly describes what this guy is doing as he goes on his doomed quest with his doomed friend and everything and, and in in this terrible awful world and uh and yeah and and I'm real I I I want to go back and like find some Brubaker interviews around the time because I'm the choice about the choice to have the omniscient narrator I think is it's not what he usually does I think in most of their books they do have first person narration like mm-hmm. in yeah that's what they do in like uh killer be killed in the reckless books night fever night fever definitely yeah but I think it, I think it's the right choice for the fade out and I would love to know more about that choice well, I do love, like you said, pulling the camera back just a little bit to show what everyone else is up to. Mm-hmm. Like, ultimately, there's the one Reckless novel that Ethan isn't the main character of, but Ethan is the main character of the Reckless series, yeah. right? Like, he's in it's it. It's his name. Yeah. And I think that this story feels as big and as the corruption goes all the way to the top as it does because we get to see angles other than Charlie, because ultimately Charlie is a pretty cynical character and he is an unreliable narrator. And so it's kind of nice to have this more objective view that shows like, okay, this isn't just his view of the world. He is operating within a world like he says he is. Um, And, Anne, I want to know. So outside of Charlie, who do you think had, the most interesting story in the fade out. Sorry, I'm just thinking. <laughs> I don't know. I want to say Maya, but I don't want to. <laughs> I mean, I, I, would, like... I think I would agree. <sighs> just didn't want to be stereotypical here. Um. Yep. <laughs> Just said the bl- the blonde one's my favorite. I liked her. She was fun. Um. No, but I think she she had the most to do. She was always on the outskirts of having something really, really great, and it was just the point where it was like frustrating enough to where it's like just just give me more. Just give me just a little bit more. And- I don't know. I I feel like that's always the part that I I um have to dance around a little bit and concede a bit when I go into noir. I always feel like with with the women is like I I know what this what tropes we're going to fall into here. I know what concessions I'm going to have to make as a reader to make the story to work. I understand what's going to happen to these characters and I feel like Ed Brubaker in the couple that I've in the few know our books that I've read from Brubaker and Phillips, they do a pretty good job of actually fleshing out the women, at least not the ones that, you know, just are, are dead at the beginning, but the, the others, they still get their time to shine. And I, I appreciate everything that happened with my in this book. I think one of my favorite characters is Dottie Quinn. The PR I was about girl. to bring her up. Did you know she is actually based off loosely off of Brubaker's aunt, who was that in classic Hollywood? So like a lot of his love for this is from her stories about doing this. Interesting. 
He's like, I couldn't make it a one for one. He's like, because she was like a very old aunt. He's like, I didn't know her enough to really get into her personality. He's like, I kind of invented Dottie's personality, but the stories and this idea of creating the fiction that was Hollywood through PR comes from his aunt who did this job. That makes a lot of sense because the thing with Dottie is I'm like, you could just write a book from that's just about her. That's I mean, it would be a very different book because, you know, there wouldn't be quite as much murder uh, and like depravity in it, but just like her job and she's good at her job is just like constructing narratives. Her thing of like, okay, we want to like, we're going to announce the, like the engagement at the movie premiere to like deflect attention away from, uh, from the fact that like Val was replaced. And then basically just like, you know, once again, just bury Val's memory even more, but just like she's, I mean, she's basically uh, like as much of a storyteller as actually more of a storyteller than Charlie is because Charlie's not even writing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, she's so interesting. And then you get like fun little parts where, you know, Charlie's accompanying her to an event and he's like, I don't know if this is a date or not. And uh, which is one of the the (laughs) the rare lighthearted parts of this this entire thing. Uh, And then we get, you know, the like the a little a little snippet to like, you know, Dottie's background and like her personal life and, you know, what she's up to. But, uh, but yeah, I think she's so interesting. And so, so like vividly realized for a character who could just be, you know, totally one dimensional. Yeah. I love how she pushes back against Charlie. I feel like ultimately she's probably the character with the most give and take with Charlie because Gil and Maya, while they are larger in his narrative, they fade into the background as he ignores them. But Dottie has this ability to not be ignored by Charlie. And I think it's fascinating. Um, Alexis, I got to ask you, who is your favorite character outside of Charlie? I I was also going to say Dottie, but I feel like I feel like for me, I wouldn't say that he was necessarily my favorite character, but I felt like I was very intrigued by the concept of Gil and like his story and where he came from and how like he fucked up his entire family's life and they just were like vibing in the shadows. <laughs> I was like, we have this character of his wife, Melba, and like her relationship with Charlie and just like them tiptoeing around each other until the very end. And I'm like, I feel like this was something that like yes it was in the background but i f- i i don't know if i want to say i liked that i knew that it was coming but like i just feel like we got so much context with the fact like that gil was doing all of these things coming home drunk being a deadbeat dad to his children like all this crazy stuff and i feel like it just kind of f- also like fleshed out a lot of those characters like his wife as a character much more than what I would have anticipated. And so, like, just, just like, even when they were, like, taking his kids trick-or-treating, like, that just seemed very, like, normal person behavior for the story that we were reading. And I feel like it, I don't know, like, it, I feel like it made me understand Gil's reasoning behind what he was doing. Like, he 
was grasping at straws to try and like bring back the life that he had, which I thought was very interesting because he had no control over literally anything. I want to ask one follow-up question. Mm -hmm. You also really liked the Black Sad books and there was a whole Red Scare Black Sad Mm -hmm. book. So how did you like the handling of the Red Scare with Gil in this book? Um, if I'm going to be honest, I feel like it didn't, well, maybe that's not what I want to say. I feel like it didn't blatantly jump out at me like it did in Black Sad, if that makes any sense. Like, it took me a second to be like, oh, like, that's what they're getting at. Like, I didn't catch on quickly enough, but that might also just be me, (laughs) because I was doing my own little thing. But I also, I also, I just feel like it kind of made sense for the character, like the way that they were building him, I feel like it just made a lot of sense for why he was making the choices he was making to drive home the plot. I like that. I like the the subtlety of the Red Scare yeah. bit, especially at the end where you find out that the FBI agent was the one that killed her and that he killed her because she didn't have anything to tell him. She was the one yeah. bit of Hollywood that was too too clean too too perfect to give him what he wanted and so she was punished for it yeah that was the i think that's the the real nail that drives home just how like (laughs) just how fucking bleak the end of this book is that was that will probably be the part that sticks with me the longest and then just new fbi guys move into the studio to take his place there's more of them now actually there's two also uh, one thing i do want to say about gil and i I think one of gil's finer moments is uh when he goes to meet up with dashiell hammett and and he's like okay so uh i know this is i'm dealing with like a real life thing but if you were writing like a book uh (laughs) what would you do here yeah he's like hypothetically I got myself in a real deep shit over here. <laughs> right. But it's all fake. I love that Gil's whole character motivation in this book is always, I am so bored in this house right now. Yeah. I got to get out of here. It reminds me of that meme of the guy like shaking on the bars like, let me out. It <laughs> reminds <Gil>. me <laughs> of my ADHD wife. That's like, we got to go for a walk right now. Mm-hmm. We got to, we got to get out of here. <laughs> Wait, one sec. When you say the guy shaking the bars, do you mean Eric Andre? Probably. But but isn't he shouting, let me in? Maybe that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's just the image of him shaking the bars. <laughs> like, no one writes anything in this book. Like, all the rewrites that are happening, no, they aren't. They're just turning in the same pages over and over again. <laughs> right. I mean, the, that's one thing that I love where they, like, they, like, reshoot uh, some rewritten scenes like with Maya and then the director's like wait it was better the way we did it the first time around and uh, and then yeah and th- <laughs> and then he was at the rap party he punches Charlie he's like you ruined my movie you wouldn't do the rewrites that I wanted you to do that's crazy or rewrite every night I was like that is cruel and unusual punishment. chaos that is crazy <laughs> Yeah, hey, I, I mean, ah, there's. I just keep thinking back to more stuff that I like, where like, uh, you know, yeah, uh, Dottie, true hero of the book, but there's the part where, um, I, 
uh, was it Tyler? Um, Tyler Graves. Tyler Graves, where he goes and basically intentionally crashes his car. And then she has to make up a reason for why he crashed his car and and all of that. And then be like, okay, now we're going to put together, we're going to manufacture this romance uh, to like paper, you know, to paper this over and and make it seem okay. But that reminded me a lot of like, uh, I I, I assume this is deliberate. Uh, It's kind of like... Um, th- th- that to me seemed like a, like a kind of an, an allusion to Montgomery Clift's uh, car accident, the one that he had while leaving Elizabeth Taylor's birthday party. I think uh, the the Montgomery Clift episode of "You Must Remember This" is really really good, and that's the part that vividly like stuck in my mind. How apparently then like like. Elizabeth Taylor like ran down the road to find his like like wrecked car and actually like reach into his mouth to pull out his teeth to stop him from choking on them because they they'd like gotten it's like I mean Montgomery Clift had an extremely sad life uh, and that car accident did mess up his face so much that it like can be he, it didn't move the same way in the rest of his acting career it's like really bleak. But I, I, another, like, you know, closeted gay actor uh, who, uh, you know, uh, was just had a really hard time. And so and, and I, I like how in this book, none of the fictional characters really seem like, you know, deliberate one to one references to actual people. But there are, you know, I, I think in, in ways like that, like little nods to just different people, different stories um, in the way that uh, it manages to be like a really kind of great encapsulation of this era of of Hollywood uh, through primarily fictional characters. So it's the kind of, it, honestly, it's the kind of book where it's like, I feel like you could hand it to someone who ha- who knows nothing about like 1940s Hollywood and be like, this is, this kind of gives you a little history lesson through fictional characters about what was going on. I mean, I would agree. I'll be honest. I don't know a lot about the behind the scenes of classic Hollywood. And this still very much spoke to me. Like, and I feel like, I've joked about this with my wife before, but like I read this book prior to like me too. And I remember reading the scene with the door in the back of the closet and like that shook me up. Like Mm -hmm. I, that was a real like glass shattering moment where I was like, wait, that kind of stuff happens. And like, it felt real enough within this story and then find out from Brewbreaker, like it felt real because it is real like there really was a studio producer who had doors into all the closets and the scene with like the creepy agent that had told Maya like how to keep herself safe in that situation and I just it left me feeling so gross but in a way that stuck where like this is a book I reference a lot in that specific scene was like, that was one of the most emotionally stirring, like, holy shit, there are bad people doing bad things in powerful places. And that's such a a duh thing now. But at the time that I read it, it wasn't for me yet. And I think that kind of honesty from the fade out and the fact that the, the book will look right into that evil eye and it doesn't make it 
salacious. It doesn't make it sexy. It just makes it real in a way that you're like, I don't want anything to do with that. I mean, I think it's the thing where also for so many of these people, uh, you know, like Maya's agent, um, like they're used to it because they're like, yeah, this is, we have a, like, it's an industry and a system and this is how it works. And like, yeah, that thing that this sucks, but it's like, this is how it works. This is what you have to do to get this job. Okay. You know, a creepy old man who runs the studio is going to come through the closet. Um, Here's how, here's how you deal with this situation. Uh, You know, oh, your, you know, your ex-husband shows up, you know, drunk at your house. Okay. Well, you know, the, the studio fixer is going to be there to like, you know, beat the shit out of him. And, um, and you, and you know, you'll go along with it because it's like, look, you know, he's not currently your husband and you want your acting career to like to move forward. So you got to have him out of the picture and not being an issue anymore. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I think that's what, why it lands like so effectively because it's just like, pretty much everyone here knows how this how this works like this is not none of this stuff is like new to them but also uh that the image of thursby just coming out of the closet is so unsettling like that's a jump scare right there like you're you know in the movie version of this i don't know she's like going through her clothes in the closet and then suddenly like eyes emerge behind them uh yeah. horrifying yeah, it absolutely is. And I, going back to The Fixer, Phil Brodsky, Brodsky. I love comparing him against Dottie. And I like that he makes the comparison himself. Like, I remember the first time I read this, I was actually a little disappointed with issue 12, just being Brodsky, being like, this is what happened. I was like, ah! But having read a lot more noir, a lot more detective fiction, I appreciated it a lot more this time. And I like that he's like, I'm the one that has to create to clean up the narratives. Like Dottie gets to write these fun, frilly narratives for all of you. I'm the one that has to go and beat them into reality. And I just thought that was such an interesting perspective on this story where you have Dottie, Charlie and Brodsky ultimately trying to figure out how to, make this senseless act of violence right from the beginning of the story. And they all go about it in such different ways. And I, I don't know what it says that like Brodsky is the successful one. (laughs) Yeah. The one that like puts Val to rest. Yeah. It's funny because um, you you talk about, you know, the revelation of, or how, how the, the book delivers the revelation about like what really happened and the thing is as much as this is noir uh it's not about a detective and usually the way these stories go is a detective figures it out and then explain like the protagonist usually explains it but this is not about a detective it's actually about a guy who uh is uh generally really pretty bad at like attempting to be like an amateur detective um and so I think, I mean, we as an audience, we want the whole, from the opening scene, we want to know what happened. But I feel like, especially rereading it, the answer has to come from, like, the the system itself. And because, like, Charlie can't really 
change anything. And I and I think what's kind of one of the things I like about the way it ends up is that like Brodsky's not by no means like a good guy, but uh I think by the end is uh seems way seems less bad than many other people in the story. Uh like like him in chapter 12, it's like he is if nothing else, he's just like he's like a a realist where he's like look, this is you know, I I just I have to keep this machine moving and and this is and and everything I do is basically just in service of you know, allowing like stopping this thing from all like blowing up or like collapsing underneath us. So I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, I wouldn't even say I'm, I'm sympathetic toward Brodsky, but I I like the character, and and you you get where he's coming from, and then and and like what he's trying to do, and also I think a big part of it is in the story that he delivers, uh, he is so much less bad than um. Uh, what's his name? Uh, FBI guy. Uh, who is actually behind it all? What's his name again? Oh, what is his name? The thing is, he's not in the cast list. Yeah, I don't remember his name. Oh, also, uh, not to just like keep listing things I like, but I love the way that Charlie's memory is so bad and he's so often inebriated that he fully misremembers the scene where he meets the FBI guy and places it into a different setting. And mm-hmm. so like he remembers the guy putting his card in his pocket and then he checks his pocket and it's a, it's a note from Tina and Ooh, then later on, he's like, "Oh right, I met him at like a part at, at at the party at the beginning. Like that's where that happened." I uh, the the way this deals with with just um a a protagonist with a really bad memory, I think is like really impressive. And I'm gonna find this guy's name. I like is just Di- FBI guy. I know. Is I it Dick something? It should be if it's not. Yeah, this is good Mr. podcast Dick. material, right? Uh, I uh, I'm just flipping through a book. Um, the people. No, that's about what we usually do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, got it. It's Drake Miller. Drake Miller. I was gonna say Dean. I was close. We knew it was a D name. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the worst. He also has a very punchable face. Mr. Drake mm-hmm. Miller, you just look at him, you're like, you are the villain. You're right. You know who he, he reminds me of? That kid on We're the Millers that's now in the Avengers movie. Just <clears throat> want to punch him so hard. Do you mean Will Poulter? Yeah. Mm, I don't even know his name because I just want to punch him. <laughs> so I've never seen We're the Millers, and but do you mean the guy who plays Adam Warlock in Guardians yes. 3? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, he's the kid in We're the Millers that goes, you guys are getting paid? I feel that oh, every day when I f- do this podcast. I've seen <laughs> gifts of that. Mm-hmm. Good actor. Mm-hmm, yeah. Punch yeah. in the face, though. Re- re- he's really good in one episode of uh, the new season of The Bear. Oh, I didn't know he was in that. Good for him. Well, yeah, one episode. <laughs> he's, uh, he's good. But yeah, anyway, Drake Miller is this guy uh, who also, you know, it. oh, 
I I love the part when is it's not when we first see him, but when uh the photographer's house burns down and Charlie shows up there <sighs> and Drake Miller is just there in a car, like watching. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh oh w- with a camera. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's uh there's there's a good panel. It's uh I can't remember if it's like issue three. I think it's issue three, where the the last page of the book, the top left panel, is the close up of of Drake Miller just staring at the camera uh from the backseat of a car holding a camera, and the narration just says shit. <laughs> good. Good book. Yeah, good book. So, Patrick, we had some people writing questions for the show. Oh, cool. Um, are we all good to roll into the se- question section? I picked out some of the best. Um, thank you, everyone, for writing in. Obviously, we aren't going to be able to get to all of them. But I think these ones encapsulate a lot of what everyone was wanting to ask. So... Alexis, can you ask the first question in the list? Absolutely. All right, says, hey, Comics Collective, I have a question for you guys about Ed Brubaker, Sean Phillips, in advance of your the fade out conversation. What time period would you love for them to explore in a project? They've done the 40s, 70s, and more. Is there anything you wish they would do? Thanks, Jared from Jandals Talks Comics. Thank you, Jared. Thanks, Jared. Before I answer that question, what other time periods have they done that I wouldn't know? A lot. Uh, like like uh, Pulp, I believe, is set in the... Th- is it the 30s? Yeah, because the Nazis are in it, so it's post-20s. Right. So it's got to be the 30s. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, but, it, but, but, but it's in the days when it's like the Nazis haven't like... Re- like people don't know how bad they really are. Yeah. When there can just be a Nazi rally in New York. Um, so yeah, they've done the thirties, uh, reckless cover seventies and eighties is night fever seventies. I I thought it was contemporary. Is it? But are there cell phones in it? I guess I haven't thought about that. I think it's, I think it's a, a bit further back. Um, they've done contemporary stuff like killer be killed is, is all contemporary. Um, I mean, I would love. Well, they've been Brubaker's been talking for a while about how they have another story planned in the Fade Out universe. That's not just. That's like not just like a, a sequel, but oh my god, what if it's just like a Dottie series? That would be so cool. Oh, that would rule. Um, but I. But yeah, because I. My answer is honestly, uh, go forties and fifties still. Like I. I think that is such like uh the that's like the golden era of American noir and I would just love to see them hang around in that era for as long as they want. I agree. I want more 70s reckless. I know that we are catapulting towards I mean, we have a present day scene at the end of the most recent book. And it moved into the 80s as we went. But I, there's just something about bell bottoms, cowboy boot kicking butt <laughs> from the middle of the 70s that I want more of. 
there's also no reason that with reckless books, like they don't have to all go chronologically, right? No, they could just do one and be like, "Oh, it's set in between books one and two. Exactly. It's like Sherlock Holmes that way. Where so your 1940s 50s deep dive into noir has been. I have been reading every Sherlock Holmes thing ever. Oh wow! And I I, I know people who have done that. It's not all good, but it is all great, <laughs> if that makes sense. And I, I love that at the end of the second novel, they have married off Watson. And then in the middle of the first short story collection, they're like, that is so boring. All of these are flashbacks to when they were still friends living in an apartment together. Perfect. And then every once in a while, they'll flashback. They're like, this one takes place after the marriage. And Sherlock just comes and knocks on the door like, can the old... Mrs. Watson lets you out to play. And Watson's like, of course. <laughs> and they go on an adventure again. And then you it. get, you get to like the final problem. And Watson is weeping about how like the most emotionally intimate relationship he's ever had has just ended with Sherlock dying. And you're like, you've got a wife at home that you didn't check in with before this holiday to Europe. <laughs> like you said, she'll be all right. And you went to Switzerland with this man. This is the greatest book ever written. Anyway. So I, I must ask: Are you also doing the 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 books and stories written not by we'll Conan see. Doyle? I read a Gaiman one that was a lot of fun, and I've heard there's a Stephen King one that's very fun. But then I might just hit some of the greats because I uh, I don't know. I don't know that I can do that many more. I will say though, Alan Moore's Mycroft is so singed into my brain from League of Extraordinary Gentlemen that he has retroactively, he's just that in yeah. these Arthur Do- Conan Doyle I get copies. it. Uh, also, uh, one thing that I do have to mention here, since you're reading all of these, um, one of my ongoing projects has been reading, I don't know when it will, when I'll, how, like what my stopping point is, but just reading all of post-crisis Batman comics. Okay. I... Uh, Maybe I'll go up to, I started, like, uh, here's my comic book history. I started reading monthly ongoing comics in June 1999. Okay. Uh, halfway through No Man's Land. That's how I got into comics. Uh, so maybe I'll just keep going all the way up to there. But anyway, in an issue in, I think, 1987, um, I think it might have been written by Mike S. Barr uh, and... Alan Davis drew it. Alan Davis's brief period drawing Batman comics was That's beautiful. Right. That's right. But there's a story where Batman encounters Sherlock Holmes, and they establish that he is over 100 years old. Uh, and he's there in the comic, and um, and he's just like, yeah, I take good care of myself, and like you know, kind of vaguely refers to why he's still alive. And he's just like, Hey Batman, if you ever need help, but again, give me a call. So canonically in post crisis, DC comics continuity, Sherlock Holmes exists and he's alive. That is a great gift to me. Thank you very much for that. My, my favorite outside of anything, Sherlock Holmes recent, nugget was i was reading how to invent everything from ryan north and he talked about how important it is to invent sherlock holmes but then if you really want to make him stick you have to just give him bat year bat ears and kill his parents and name him bruce wayne and that made me laugh so hard 
that I started reading all the Sherlock Holmes stories. So Ryan North is deserves the credit for this. He does. I thank you, Ryan North. Thank you for Squirrel Girl, and thank you for pointing me at Sherlock Holmes for the first time since I was ten. Ryan North is a buddy of mine that I have never met. I I for that book I uh, I I even I, I shot a little promotional video for him that he asked me to do, but we've never met in person. And uh, but uh, he's great, lovely guy, great writer. I'm really enjoying his current Fantastic Four run. It's so good. He is it, so talented. Like I. He was my last binge before Sherlock Holmes and it catapulted right into this and everything the guy does. Great. He's so good. Yeah. Is he, is he going to come in to town for New York comic con? I don't know. I, I don't know, know he is pretty booked up because we talked about getting him on the show and he was like, I am slammed till January. See you then. You're like, aye, aye, captain. I just want to hang out with him. I feel like he'd be a great time to hang out with. Yeah, I, I just seems like a cool guy. Anyway, this is this is uh, is it, uh, okay. We have a lot of questions. Let's get through the questions. Uh, Lex, do you want to read or Anne? Do you want to read the next one from yeah. Jorge Quiroz? Yeah. Um. Hi, Comics Collective crew and Patrick. Greetings from Mexico. In the past few years, Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips have put up great noir comics that have been greatly received by the public and critics alike, prompting other comics writers to come up with more great works in the genre. My question is, is comic books the best medium right now to tell these stories, seeing that in the world of comics, critics and fans alike support this medium and genre compared to movies and TV? There are great TV shows and movies that don't get the support they deserve, like the case of Perry Mason. Meanwhile, in comics, they're having more and more comics in the genre. Saludos, Desde Mexico, um, Jorge Cuaros. Sorry if I said your name wrong. Um, yeah, so what do we think? Is this the best medium to be telling noir stories in right now? Yes. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a big fan of people reading, so yes. Let them come find um, it. There was far too much sex in this for this to be anywhere else. So yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. unless it were like on, it HBO. on HBO, like um, like you, like the dearly departed Perry Max. Mason. Max. Well, oh. hey, HBO, the 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 actual broadcast there channel is still around. Max, that Perry Mason show is great. Yeah, it's a good show. It's it's really good. I like it a lot. Um, it's also just like they uh, movies are okay. Actually, I can talk about this for way too long, but I'll give a, sh- a short answer. Uh, obviously, m- noir is most famous existing in movies. Um, uh, right now, uh, you know, original bleak crime movies uh, aren't going to get made f- with, with with I think the budgets they deserve. Uh, and also, this is my personal take. I, I, uh, I think this genre in, and in, in terms of like cinematically, um, rarely looks as good, uh, with digital cinematography. Uh, I think it really benefits from shooting on film. And so, yeah, it's, uh, less likely that modern 
noir films will will look as good as they should. Uh, but I think in comics you get you still get the visuals. Uh, but with comics, you don't need budgets because you know draw anything and it, it costs the same. Um, and so I think I think comics are the best place to do it. I agree. I think something that reading Sherlock Holmes and then thinking about detective fiction since him, an essential part of a detective story is going somewhere salacious. Like baked into that genre from Sherlock Holmes is we're going to introduce you to an interesting guy who has something going on. He is then going to take you to somewhere that is going to make you go, oh my. And then he's going to use that very special talent we established in the first act to unravel whatever made you go, oh my. And believe it or not, listener, a lot of comic books do that exact same formula where they go, here's this guy. He's got this great superpower. We're going to send him to a dinosaur island. And now he's going to use those powers to solve that problem. And so I think comic books being born out of the same time period as a lot of this noir detective fiction in post-World War II. And then you have, like, right as noir is coming out of its golden age, you have the space race that brings the second wave of comic books. They just, they go together so well because they're born out of the same sensibilities. They're talking to the same version of America that we have been perpetually looking back at since then and trying to find our identity in post-World War II. And so you can either go, oh man, in World War II, we were so awesome. That's great. Then we went to space. We're superheroes. Or you can go, oh man, World War II really messed us up. We came home and we saw all the cracks back here at home. Now I'm a noir detective. And like this... 20 year span of fiction really provides you your two paths on your viewpoint about America. And so I think it's interesting in the modern day for someone like Ed Brubaker, who followed that superhero dream for a while, became disillusioned from it to now use that same medium to explore these kind of stories so heavily. I think they're a match made in heaven, honestly. Yeah. Oh, I, I totally agree. It is also impressive just how much noir he was able to get away with doing in superheroes. Oh, yeah. You read Gotham, GCPD, and you're like, huh, huh, Gotham Central. This is just a police procedural noir. That's nice. It absolutely is. Like, like the Catwoman run, that is absolutely, like, Catwoman might as well just be like a PI. Actually, okay, here's the, the funniest thing about the Catwoman run. Uh, maybe the second most important character in the whole run is Slam Bradley private detective that Catwoman just teams up with and becomes like her detective buddy slash love interest. That rules. And it's, have you read Gotham year one from Tom King? Uh, I did. I read it in single issues and uh, I'm excited to, you know, pick up like the collected edition and read it again. Shout out Slam Bradley. Oh, also, Slam Bradley. What a guy. I was like, I've also seen the recent Perry Mason and I have also heard about the Limbering baby. Ha ha. Ha ha. You scoundrel, Tom. <laughs> okay, more questions. Let's see how fast we can get through them. All right, so we've got two more. 
From Brian Rahill, we have, what do you all believe is the purpose of the noir genre in the modern day? I'm sure it has evolved from its beginning, as we can see with the stories we've gotten in the genre over the years and the development of the neo-noir genre. Does it still have a place in storytelling? Is there one right answer or is it just a multifaceted mystery as seen in the fade out itself? What makes the genre so endearing then that people return to it? Thank you. Be well and keep reading. Best, Brian Rahill. Can you read the first part of that again? Because our connection just like broke up for a second and I I didn't hear like the first sentence. Yes. What do you all believe is the purpose of the noir genre in the modern day? Anne, noted noir lover of the podcast. How do you feel like you approach noir in the modern day? Because you've talked a lot about how some of the tropes of this genre but against what you're looking for in stories. Do you feel like there's still a place for this sort of hard-boiled storytelling? And are there ways for these stories to be told that can catch your interest? I mean, yeah, there's definitely still ways that I think it can be told. It's just, I you get to the point where you're like, there's a lot of tropes that this genre has been carrying with it since the 40s. And there's... I ask myself the question, like, are we carrying these tropes with us because they're endearing? Or are we carrying them with us because they're here and they're just inherent to the genre? Like, I, it gets very, very tiring, especially in the medium of comics, to see women used as a plot device to fill the, to push forward the emotional character arcs of men. It's not, because it's not just a noir thing at that point. That's just been happening in superhero comics since the 90s or the 80s it's just it that's just how it goes and it reaches the point where you start to feel the burnout where instead of like reading the story for what it is you're just like i've seen this before and it has already checked me out of the story it's it's a hard thing it's it's a hard thing to engage with and you can definitely make it better there are other perspectives from the genre that people are not getting i think the noir the noir genre has had a thousand and one takes of the the machismo um, escapism that it has, where it's like, I am the, the burly Mike Danger detective, and all the women want me, and this is my life, and oh, wow, life is sad, but I'm so cool. Where it's like, there are 101 other people that you could look at from these time periods, from these perspectives, get their outlook on life. I think that was one of the cool things that... Um, it's it's not a noir by any stretch of imagination. But I'm thinking about it because it's from around the the same. It's set around that same um, early Hollywood um, setting, and I'm thinking about the the movie Babylon, and just how that was a, a piece that had so many different characters. You had um, you had black characters, you had queer characters, and it just shows how all of them interacted differently and independently with the scene, and it offered something really really refreshing. I think so in the modern day, it's I think what the noir noir genre needs to do to get more people to engage with it is to start taking those tropes and being smarter with them and expanding outwards rather than just saying, how many ways can we tell the same story where the where we start off and the dame is dead? Word. So wait, remind me, the, the the question is, what is the purpose of noir today? Yes. Yes. Well, I mean, I there's kind of, I feel like there's two components to it where there is, uh, 
you know, there's noir, like, let's say, like, you know, James Elroy books, even if they're written in the 80s, that's still, like, relatively modern, are, like, you know, the the film adaptation of L.A. Confidential from the, like, the late 90s. Uh, those are, you know, noir set, but they're, they're period pieces. They are, they are, you know, ways of like re-examining, you know, our past and the country's past. And, uh, and, and there I, I, you know, one value of it is, uh, is, is to, you know, like, like the fade out does, um, uh, to, to explore the actually really kind of unpleasant uh messy history that is often like of the country that's often told as like a very whitewashed like a sanitized romanticized thing that is also like inaccurate so it's a it's a good vehicle for for exploring the the reality uh of of our history but then there's like neo-noir um like you know the 70s and 80s were really big for this where it's using noir elements but for like contemporary stories. And um, I think, I mean, there's noir, if you want to say where it's like, oh, it's all, you know, there's like murder mysteries. And then it's, and it's just that it, it, it's like solving, you know, who, who killed this person. But then there's stuff like, you know, like Michael Mann movies, like, uh, like Thief, is that's that would fall under the category of like neo noir, and that's not a murder mystery or anything. It's just like it's really just kind of using. There's stylistic elements uh, which I think are just uh, cool and good, and I like them. But then there's just like I, I think a major part of it is just you know the the moral ambiguity, the like the sadness of its protagonist, who usually have kind of like locked themselves into one job that they're good at that kind of gives their lives meaning uh and it's it's all they really know how to do uh and so yeah i mean i think it's i i honestly think it's one of those genres one of those those genres that's like uh you know kind of uh flexible enough and can and and can like shift into different forms uh and you can use different elements of it where like it'll always be relevant uh and you can you can kind of do it anywhere obviously like you know like there's plenty of like science fiction noir stories set in the future like you can do any anything with it It, 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 it's really just like oh if you've got dark lighting and heavy shadows and uh and 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 protagonists who are like you know just sad people doing a job with like a, you know, potentially like, you know, loose sense of morality. That's, that's all you really need. That's all anybody needs is what I got to say. This is the greatest genre of all time. And I don't know if you knew that or not, but uh, listen here. No, I think for me, what makes noir a genre that stays perpetually pertinent is the fact that it's always looking at some sort of institutional corruption like so much of noir fiction is saying here is something for the fade out it was old hollywood that is rotten at its core and we are going to begin with very personal stakes that lead us down the pathway towards this institutional corruption it's a lot of what i find interesting 
in the genre. It's what made me want to explore that genre with my first book. It's just like, I want to look at institutions that have hurt me and hurt other people through a loosely thriller action vibe, right? Like, ultimately, that's all noir is, is saying, here is somebody who is going to get at the things that have hurt us all. And I think that that is an immensely pertinent genre trapping. I think you're right, Anne, that there are tropes that have been carried for a very long time. But I think the heart of noir, this idea that sometimes when you look into the darkness, all that looks back is black. Sometimes when you look into the lights of Hollywood, all you see back is black, is real and pertinent. And I think it allows us to explore some of that hurt in an entertaining and more palatable way than just sitting in it and ruminating on it. Sometimes you want somebody to try to fix it, even if they will ultimately fail, because it shows that it is worthwhile for you to try and fix what is going on in the world around you. I think that's really well put. I don't know. I, I I don't know why my mind went blank and I just like forgot about the institutional corruption part because yeah, that is like fundamentally like one of the major components of this whole thing. Like like uh, a week ago, like here in New York, uh, I went to a, a screening of Blade Runner, which I'd never seen on the big screen before, and um, obviously one of the, like the classic like sci fi noir movies. But that is fundamentally about a system of like a a company that makes fake people, but doesn't think of them as people. So it programs them to die after a few years because they're just disposable commodities. And, uh, and thus that's why I would argue that it's one of like the great noir movies beyond just the fact that the heavy shadows and rain look cool. Yeah. And yeah, so yeah, and and uh, well, th- that said, um, I, I probably within the next decade, uh, you know, the world is going to become like like a really wonderful utopia, and then there'll be no need to explore institutional corruption anymore because everything will be okay. Yeah, we're so close to figuring. Yeah, it out. I, it, we're we're gonna get there. Uh, yeah, I think just a couple more years. Listen, when we all move to Mars with that guy that's doing such a good job at everything else he does, that's when we won't need noir anymore. Exactly, everything will be better. That said, more Mars Noir. Mars Noir. Anne, that's your task for the week. I'm going to need you to crack out a couple Mars Noir ideas. Mars Noirs. Mars Noirs. Mars. Yes. Yes. Okay. Million dollar idea. There you go. All right. Um, Who wants to read Glenn's last question? I do not think. Oh, there it popped up on mine. Okay. I can read it now. Dear stars of the screen, if I could request another Dallas impression from Lexi, um, one, fave classic movie, let's say pre-1965 since you're all children, um, and two, I think in comparison to Criminal, Reckless, etc., this one is overlooked. Thoughts on if I'm right and why this could be? So question See, one, we- favorite classic movies? Wait, wait. Casablanca. Pre-1965? Yes. Pre-1965. God, that's so hard. And I am a child. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I just I'm looking at one just to make sure it's yep. Rambo. Okay. Yeah. I for one like Twelve Angry Men <laughs> quite a lot. Rambo. I was gonna say <laughs> Casablanca and Twelve Angry Men are mine too. Mm-hmm. 
Rambo was not pre-1965. I need you to try again, Lexi. <laughs> Tell my father that. Also, when you say Rambo, do you mean First Blood or do you mean the uh, the 2008 <laughs> movie called Rambo? Definitely not the 2008 one. She means First Blood. It was okay. on loop in our household. Mm-hmm. That's what I was raised watching. That one. Good movie. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Listen, you've got Rambo, Predator, Alien, Seinfeld, Repeat. That is Ooh, Seinfeld. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What they've That's revisited it. that one. Seinfeld. Ooh, they're watching Hoarders. Your favorite now. classic film. Mm-hmm. Classic film. Seinfeld. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Wait. Wait. Is it? Is this favorite noir movie or just literally any just favorite? Any, anything. Any classic pre, movie. Pre nineteen sixty five. My God. You delivered that line like it was the big revelation in your movie. Like, oh. This is so hard. And now there's a montage going behind you. This is your beautiful mind moment with all the math floating around you. Exactly. I'm uh, trying to remember lists of movies and I'm like just going blank. I don't know. I just remembered one. Swiss Family Robinson. I love that movie. That's a good one. (laughs) That's a good movie. There you go. That's a good one. I love Psycho. little elephant around. Wonderful. (laughs) If 1965 is our cutoff, I love Psycho. Mm-hmm. Great one, um, man. I mean, I. See. Okay, but I'm just gonna say Night of the Hunter, and then and then just get out of here because if if I don't give an answer now, I'll I'll just be here all day. Yep. <laughs> I'm I'm also gonna say Metropolis because I hate having the same answer as Dallas, so I need to be special and unique. You can't even watch that whole movie, Anne. <laughs> yes, I can, and I did for my sci-fi film class in college. Thank you very much. There are parts of that movie that are missing, Anne. <laughs> Joke all, on you. All that I could. You just said you saw the whole thing? Ha. Fake fan. The whole thing that exists. i sorry I didn't get the Snyder Cut of Metropolis. Yeah. Listen, if we all write into Warner Brothers, we can get the <laughs> Snyder Cut of Metropolis. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm going to hire uh, a plane to fly over Comic-Con with a banner saying, release the full cut of Metropolis. <laughs> you cowards, undo the fire. Yeah. Undo it now. Justice we know you for have the Fritz. flash drive. Um, do you agree that the fade out is underrated in Brubaker and Phillips' work? I think everyone I know likes this book, so I don't know. I... I think it is underrated. Yeah. I think it is. I don't, uh, like, yeah, w- when it comes to their stuff, is, what are, what are, like, the ones that everyone gravitates to? Criminal, for sure. Yeah, because that was, like, you know, just kept going for so long. Um, I know a lot of Killer Be Killed fans. That's true. Killer Be Killed is a fun one because it, uh, with the premise, it sounds like it's going to be like a Mark Millar comic, uh, and then it's not. A Mark Millar comic derogatory. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, Anne. As you're getting into the Brubaker and Phillips world, was the fade out one that came up a lot for you? I feel like I don't have my finger as well on the pulse of this as I could, but I've I've heard plenty of people recommend the fade out to me, but I think I've heard more people recommend criminal and reckless. So going off that maybe question mark. I think I, this might be their best. 
So. But like, didn't this win like the Eisner Award for Best Limited Series? Oh yeah, yeah. Do you think they ever get tired of all the Eisners in their house? Like, do you think Sean Phillips has had to adjust and put another bracket underneath that shelf? They just win every year, right? It's them and Stan Sakai every year. <laughs> they just get to walk their little rut up to the front, and be like, "Thank you very much for the Stan Sakai Honorary Letterer Award," and yeah. the. Thank you, Sean Phillips and Ed Brubaker, for teaching us all how to comic book every year award. Have you ever been to the Eisners? I have not been to the Eisners. I have. And the thing about the Eisners that I learned is literally anyone can just, you can just walk into the room. <laughs> I thought you had to have an info- invitation. No, they happen, they happen at the Hilton during San Diego Comic-Con, just in a ballroom. Oh. Yeah. You just went. I well, I was like doing like a video thing in like I don't know, like twenty sixteen maybe. But yeah, I was shooting some some footage of it, and uh, and yeah, I just stood there and like with my like camera on a monopod and just filmed it. And it's it's funny, and then it's a thing where it's like, oh, it's comic book people, but then it it was like hosted by uh, Jonathan Ross. Uh, <laughs> And uh, and then every so often it's like, and this award being presented by Edward James Almos, and he's just there. And I'm like, this is such a weird event. That does sound like a weird event. And they're like, and for finishing a series, Matt Fraction, and he comes up and he's like, I did it. I wrote the end of a book. And yeah. Then he wakes up from his dream. He did not write the end of a book. He never did, has. Did you hear that Matt Fraction is the showrunner of that new Godzilla show? That, I don't know how to feel about that because I love to tease Matt Fraction a lot. I know he loves Kaiju and I know he loves Godzilla, but I just, I can't imagine working with him in a writer's room. I feel like just as someone who sits on the outside looking in at his work, I'm always like, write a third act, Matt. Write a third act. I dare you to write a third act. And he's like, ah, I'm going to move on to the next project. And he pivots and he starts a new amazing first act a strong second act, and then he shifts to a new project again. There you go. he never finishes anything. Uh, I loved his Jimmy Olsen series. That was fantastic. That That was fantastic. Genuinely, my favorite thing about the era of Bendis going to DC was that he convinced Fraction to also go, and we got the Fraction, Steve Lieber, Jimmy Olsen series. Yeah, my, my thing with, when it comes to like, I never know how to feel when it comes to like, things like, like I want comic book writers that I love to also write things in other media that you know that th- that could also be great and like introduce a wider audience to their work. But I just feel like you know when I hear that Fraction's been spending all this time writing a big Godzilla show, I'm like, but they, he's then also working with like a bunch of other people, and chances are this isn't really gonna feel that much like a Matt Fraction thing. Mm-hmm. And instead it's just prevented us from getting Matt Fraction comics. And uh, it, cause like TV is also like, there's so many writers where I'm just like, I would like it if Matt Fraction just re- got to write a screenplay for a movie. And it was just like, he was the sole credited writer and they, <laughs> they made it. That's what I want to say. That would be a lot of fun. When I heard that Matt Fraction and Terry Dodson were going to be together on a comic book, I knew that we'd get six issues of that over the course of four years, and that is exactly what has happened. 
I and still have been great. I still haven't read Adventure Man. Uh, I should. It's fantastic. Also, Terry Dodson isn't even slow. Yes, he is. Not really. He'll he'll do just like guest arcs on stuff. That's because he's slow. Because <laughs> he does three issues, and they're like, "All right, Terry, you get another two year head start on the next three. And he's like, "Thank you." I feel like I. This feels like a case to me where I'm like, I bet Fraction got tied up with other stuff. And this is why it's it's taking so long. Uh, yeah. Like, it's... Well, I think we're so used to... Like, to... We're so used to the idea of the artist being the slow person that uh, that we forget that sometimes the writers are the slow people. Because, like, right now... I have really been enjoying Miracle Man the Silver Age. I do not think Mark Buckingham is the reason that we've been waiting six months for the latest issue. I got mad about that two weeks ago, where I was like, when is that next issue coming out? And then I was like, Neil. And I was like, Neil, you're on strike from your other things. Where yet, Neil? You you have so much time. Also, you had decades. <laughs> Why'd you start if you weren't done, Neil? Right. Why that did was... you release number one if you were done? We had no expectations. There was no I deadline. Know. No. Uh, yeah, there's there's no other universe this has to fit into. There, there's no other books that are like on the schedule. No event this has to tie into. I had a 25-year head start, Neil. And you <sighs> fumbled. I just... I'm really liking that series. And I want to really know what, what's going to happen to Young Miracle Man. I... They left on quite the cliffhanger. They're like, Young Miracle Man... You're gay. They're like, see you in a year. Bum, 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 bum. By the way, I am, I'm sorry, everyone else, that we have gone off on a tangent. What was the question again? What's our favorite movie? From- it was, what's our favorite pre-1965 movie? We answered that. We did. It's Rambo. That, Rambo, 2008 Rambo. Mm-hmm. That's our favorite yeah. one. I think we got it all then, because we, we talked about if it was underrated, and that was the last thing that Gwen asked. Gwen, so Gwen, Gwen, dear Gwen, he fell off a bridge. Um, <sighs> Patrick, before we wrap up, do you have anything you want to plug or point the people to? Mm-hmm. When does this episode drop? This Wednesday. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, uh, go, go, uh, go to go to youtube.com slash Patrick H. Willems, uh, and you can see uh, videos. Uh, there that I make where I usually talk about movies but if you scroll back through there will be some where comic books come up and thus it will be related to this um, yeah that's my that's my thing to plug uh, my my next video will not be out by Wednesday so watch watch the previous one it's all good yeah. My wife's favorite one, she always points people to, is your Mamma Mia 2 video. She loves your Mamma Mia video. <laughs> and when I said I was talking to Patrick Willems, she said, tell him I like the Mamma Mia movie. Which she told you once in a movie theater. She's like, ask him if he remembers when I told him in a movie theater. I, I, like d- I ran into you guys at the Brooklyn Alamo, right? Yeah, at RRR. Yeah. Hey, y- you go into the, the screening at the Paris on Sunday? I don't have plans yet, but that sounds cool. Well, they're playing it at the Paris Theater, um, and I'm going. 
Um, but yeah, uh, I, I, I remember when she told me that and I was delighted because it, people don't tend to mention that one. Uh, you know, to me, you know, I just, the Mamma Mia video wasn't like a flop, but you know, it wasn't like it wasn't it isn't one of like the really popular ones and so on but i personally am very proud of that one it's a very good one i also thank like you. your little women video a lot thank you those i think those came out like back to back they did it was a huge like month and a half for addison and dallas for sure yeah yeah back back in june 2020 one of the the most fun times yeah, everyone was having a great time Right, in that exactly. Well, moment. I was drinking a lot of wine and making a video about Mamma Mia, here we go again. So That seems like the correct way to do it. If you Yeah. Ask me. Yeah. That I makes uh, a lot of sense. I was really productive that year because there wasn't much else to do. So I focused all my time on work. Yeah. Outstanding. Exactly. Should we, should we roll credits, everybody? Sure. You got yeah. it. All right, everyone. If you like our show and want to hear more from us throughout the week, please go follow our Twitter account at CMX Collective or our TikTok account at The Comics Collective, or you can find each of us at Dallas underscore comics, at Ann Comics, and at Lexi Lou underscore comics. If you enjoyed the show and want to show your support, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening and give us a five-star review, and we will read it off on the show. And finally, feel free to email us with your questions or comments for the show at thecomicscollective at gmail.com. And we will see you all next week when we cover Do a Power Bomb on the show. Dun dun dun. Ba-ba-bum. All right, that's going to be fun. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thanks, all.